The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good evening, everybody. My name is Brianna Barker, and I have been asked to share tonight about how I have seen God's faithfulness at work in our church. So I have been a part of the White Ridge family to various extents for the past four years or so. And I decided that tonight I am going to speak on the topic of young adults ministry, as that is something that I have had a role to play in in this past year. I was serving as the young adults worship leader or one of the young adults worship leaders um, over the course of this time in a group that has recently formed this year called Interact. So this is the brainchild of our lovely new pastor, Pastor Kevin Schuler. And he has been the one who has been walking with us all in order to discover what interact means, how the relationships that we have and the interactions that we have are more than just a transaction. So I wanted to talk a lot about how I have seen God at work through this group, a group that really did not exist as much as it did last year and how we have seen it develop, not only as a group, but as a family and as a community that is alive and growing in Christ. So this group really kicked off um, about this time last year when it just started as a group of maybe about 15 to 20 of us. And over the course of the year, we saw many new faces. Every week we would come and there would be more people and more people and people bringing friends, all coming to learn more about God and to celebrate in this beautiful opportunity we have to worship him and grow in community. So throughout the year, we did various things such as uh, every second Wednesday we would have a worship a time of worship and a little sermon given by Pastor Kevin or other members of Interact. And we would also play some games. And uh, I can tell you that they were certainly crazy at times and very loud, <laughs> very competitive. We have a very competitive group. And uh, other times we would just go out and just celebrate life together. Um, go out for pizza or I think there was laser tag even one time in bowling, uh, different things like that. But what we saw over the course of the year were people that were learning. Uh, we studied the book of Acts a lot too. So we were learning what it meant to live as a community that was focused on God especially and what it meant to walk with each other through the difficult times of life as well as through the successes of life. So that was something we learned uh, a lot about. Um, Kevin, after Acts, we spoke a lot about, oh, I'll move on from that. I don't remember what I was going to say. Okay, so through our group, um, we got to about, I would say, some days we would have 30 people plus, and it was a community that we saw thriving over the course of the year, even though there were many hardships in families, especially at this age when we have people who really don't know where their lives are going, but they are trusting in God's faithfulness in their life. And I know, especially through the course of this year, we are going to continue to see this group grow. Even though I'm going to be missing it for about half the year, I really look forward to seeing how other people are going to step up as leaders in our group and how God will continue to use our group to glorify him in this church and in our communities around us. So that is all I really have to share with you today. Um, I look forward to the group. And if you have not come to interact or you have friends or children that are around the young adult's age, or if you consider yourself a young adult, Adult. I'm not going to judge. Uh, please come and worship with us and spend some time with us. I promise you will not regret it. So thank you so much. 
1964, I was a, a young widow and experienced the pain of loss and grief. However, as a Christian, I knew that God's word said that he is always with me and he will never leave me. I was not alone. Many years later, I experienced a pain of a different kind, the pain of a marriage in turmoil. My husband was bipolar, and many times I was isolated from family and friends, including not going to church. My only outlet was my job. In January 1993, I cried out to God, I had to go to church. So I told my husband I wanted to go to White Ridge Baptist Church, and I did, but he didn't join me. On Sunday mornings, as Pastor Dave Hinkleman opens God's word, I felt a weight falling from my shoulders and I wept in every service. A few weeks later, I came home from work and discovered that my husband had moved out. The following week, I was served with divorce papers and a restraining order. As a Christian, my foundation was and is the word of God. And I knew that God hated divorce. I felt the pain of shame and guilt associated with that label. Pastor Dave Hinkleman was so instrumental in my healing. His office door was open and we would talk. And of course, I would cry and he would open God's word and pray. And gradually he helped me see how emotionally and psychologically abused I had been. And I accepted God's mercy and grace to start anew. Shortly after coming to White Ridge, someone asked me to join a fellowship group. Although I was younger, they asked me to join them because I was alone. There I met and was accepted by caring, mature Christians. Some have gone on to be with the Lord. Most recently, Hans Jackstite. Hans and Lydia were Trudy Patzer's parents and they were a very special couple. Others retired, a lot moved to Kelowna and elsewhere, and others are still here, and our friendships continue. As I healed, I joined the church and got involved. I have served the Lord in numerous ministries from Little Lamb Nursery up to facilitating seniors fellowship and a lot in between, and some ministries outside the church walls. I've also been part of many committees and served on the church board. Each ministry brings its own blessings and sometimes challenges, 
and an opportunity for Christian growth and friendships are formed while serving the Lord. I also had the privilege of going on a mission trip to Chain of Love in Brazil. Anyone who has been on a mission trip knows that you want to serve the Lord and help someone, and yet you receive so many blessings. I still remember sitting on white plastic lawn chairs in their church, jet lag from a long trip, and we were in their service, and we were singing in English, and they were singing in Brazilian Portuguese. These people had very little materially, and I later learned that some lived in the slums. Our core areas don't compare. Yet, they were joyfully praising the Lord. And that's where this old Baptist got the freedom to worship, as if no one is watching. Over the years, I've been so thankful for our pastors and leaders and how God has used them to minister to my life and help me grow in my Christian walk with the Lord. I thank God for answering my prayer way back in 1993 and helping me take that big step of walking through the front door of White Ridge Baptist Church. It has always been my prayer that we accept anyone who crosses our threshold with open arms and, if needed, encouragement and a helping hand, and that we share the love of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, a healthy church not only ministers to those within the fellowship, but also to the community and beyond. White Ridge Baptist Church has done that and continues to do so. With a larger facility, it is exciting to see the opportunities of more and new ministries and how God is going to use us to share his word right here. This is amazing. And in the very near future and beyond. So whatever we do within the walls of this church or within the boundaries of our property, may it all be to the glory of God. I've been asked this evening to talk about the history of our church, so I sure, sure hope you're comfortable. As you listen to this, there's about three, three themes that I hope you will pick up from this. You go back about 55 or 56 years when Grant Park Baptist was first started and built, and that was a church plant from McDermott Avenue Baptist Church. And that's the start of the one theme, that's an important point. And actually we still have a couple of people in our church uh, from that time. Irma Kelm was actually a chartered member of that. Her name wasn't Kelm at that point in time, but uh, she is and was a, a charter member of the church. And Trudy and Eric Patzer were part of the church at that point in time as well. Now. When that church was built, uh, the building still exists. It's across from uh, the restaurant at uh, Grant and Wilton. It's now called Temple Shalom, and it's got a great big uh, seniors complex attached to it. 
But uh, it was just built as the educational wing. It's a small shoebox affair uh, sitting there, and the intention was to build a sanctuary later. And it seemed that uh, about 80% of the church belonged to one of four families. Uh, it probably took us about five or six years to start figuring all this out when we started going to that church. But it had a strong uh, children's program with pioneer clubs and annual musicals run by Ewald and Bernita Nickel. And in 1973, Shirley and I started to attend from uh, a Mennonite and a United Church background. And we went to visit that church one day as we were looking to find a new church home. And we had a heck of a time getting out of that church. And we had people visiting us the following week and just continuing to call upon us to come back. But it was a small church, and we found ourselves reaching that plateau of about 80% or 85% of being full and then dropping back. And that happened about three or four times. And finally, in the 80s, we decided to build or to relocate. And as we looked at that, we actually had an offer from a Jewish group to buy our church and turn it into Temple Shalom. So given that the price was right, we decided to relocate. And that was the start of White Ridge Baptist. When we sold uh, White Ridge, or sold Grant Park Baptist, uh, we were in the process of building our current building. So for about a year to a year and a half, we actually met in a Seventh-day Adventist church. And that's also uh, part of something else that's been going on in our church since then, the start of interdenominational cooperation. Now, Dave and Heidi and family joined us uh, at the time that we were in that process of moving to became, uh, become our pastoral couple. And as I looked at putting all this together, I started to think, think well, who still exists in our church from those days in Grant Park? And there's not very many of us. Irma, Trudy Patzer, Walter and Vi Redlick, who many of you may not know that well. They're still members of our church, although they live and usually attend out in Steinbeck. Heidi, Mark, and uh, Jenny, uh, Bob and Mandy Hogue were part of our church back then, uh, Zelma Zosman, and of course, Shirley, Terrence, Stephen, and I. So basically, two handfuls of people who exist coming across. Now, the key people involved in planning and, and building were John Braun, Mel Bergstresser, Art Sonnenberg, Godfrey Burdine, and Milton Kelm. Of those five people, Mel is still alive and living out in BC, but the other four have passed on. Ewald Nickel, who was the choir director for 33 years in our church, planned all the acoustics in our current building, which is why we have such great sound in there. But due to concerns about the cost and ability to pay for everything that we were trying to do, we decided to cut back substantially. The end result of that was that the amount of steel that was put into our church was cut back, and the mezzanine that had been planned for our church to add uh, seating for it, uh, didn't get built because of cost, and it's not even possible to build that now because the steel just won't support it. We also did not plan enough storage space and had to take part of the basement open area to turn into storage. Uh, the whole basement was completed by people all of our church, including plumbing, electrical, gyprock, painting, etc. Everything that was done down there was done as labor, labor from our church people. And we had to modify the upstairs to add an office within two years of our starting the church back in 1988. We also had to add on to the building 10 years later. 
And shortly after we started that, started the discussion on a larger facility. So this discussion about this property actually started back about 1999, 2000. And that was headed up by Eric Bergman, Ralph Dyke, Al Donald, and Milton Kelm. They started across McGilvery, and they were looking at 16 different parcels of land. And what a task to try and negotiate with 16 different owners to try and see if they would sell us those parcels of land so that we could put together the amount of land that we needed to build a church. And one day as Ralph was wandering around through that wilderness, he looked across the street at Lafarge Cement on this property, and he wondered. Actually, he wasn't wondering. God was leading him. So he walked across the street, and he walked into the office, and he says, by any chance is the manager in? And it just so happens that the manager was in, and that in itself was a bit of a miracle because the guy was on the road all, all the time. So Ralph says, is it possible like to have five minutes of his time? So he sat down with Ken Ross and basically said, by any chance are you looking to sell some of your property here? And Ken said, how did you know that? And Ralph said, because you just told me. And that started the discussion, which ended up us buying 14 acres from Lafarge at a very attractive cost. And uh, even within that, they gave us a very good cost, and then the city hit us with a big surprise in the terms of a $168,000 development fee. And Lafarge basically gave us back 75000 of all that to help us pay off that development fee. So the land was paid off in a couple of years. We got ready to build. Or were we? And all of a sudden, I think we lost our focus on God. We were sitting in a position where we thought, hey, everything is just running well for us. You know, look at what we've done. And we stopped thinking about what God was doing. So he basically put us out in the wilderness, much like Moses, for a short period of time and made us start going back to what we were supposed to be doing, and that's building relationships. We got involved with the before and after school program. And that was as a result of the schools in area who had built a relationship with coming and asking us if we would do that. Salmang Presbyterian Church came along. Remember I was talking about the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Now we've got Salmang Church. We started to do all of that building of the relationships and to basically bring us back to where we're supposed to be, looking at God for what we're doing and where we're at. So what are the themes that I was talking to or referring about? Essentially is that we started out as a church plant, people having faith and saying, we need to reach out. We'll build a building to do that. And then we built White Ridge Baptists, and now you're standing on the property where we're proposing to build again. We're working with our own people, the people who step forward and serve, who are willing to put in the extra the time and effort to make sure that this comes about, and that still exists today. We built relationships with those people around us, which is what God wants us to do, to help us to reach out and to touch those lives. So what have we learned? God has used us to build his kingdom. He has built us as we have built his kingdom. And each step along the way, we have exercised more faith in his provision. So my question to you is, how strong is your faith today? Terence asked me a question 
a couple of weeks ago and I didn't have the answer for it. I know that's amazing in itself itself, but when we built White Ridge Baptist Church in today's dollars, it cost about $10,500 per person to pay for the whole project that we're looking at right now would cost us about 16500 per person. And to pay for what the capital funds drive that we're talking about going into right away is only about 9500 So remember that. To build White Ridge, 10500 What we're asking in the capital funds, 9500 per person. But I realize it's a little dark right now for you, but if you look around at the people next to you, I will tell you right now that this church already exists because you are the church. And as we continue to exercise the faith in God and continue to pull together and support one another in this endeavor, we'll complete the rest of it. The walls, the floor, the ceiling around us, which will enable us to continue the ministry of this church, which is us together. Thank you. All I see is lights. Hi, I'm John, and I'm a child of God. And I was really reflecting on that song about Dad and and how how uh, uh, God is our Papa. What a wonderful thing! What a crazy thing! Um, what a beautiful service tonight. Um, I'm also your brother, and uh, take it, take me or leave me. Or I'm still your brother, and um, it, that's also a wonderful thing. I wanted to do a couple of things really quickly tonight. Um, uh, three things. Uh, first, I want to tell you about my day. And you're saying why, but uh, I'm going to because I have the mic. And uh, secondly, uh, I want to give you some key dates. And then finally, I'm going to give you two uh, jobs that I want you to do. Okay? Okay, everyone okay with that? Very good, thank you. So first of all, my day. Um, I had two things that happened to me today that really reflected upon what church really means. And uh, so I wanted to quickly share that. First thing was in the morning when I was helping to come and set up here. And, uh, and uh, one of the pastors here, I won't tell you who, who uh, he is, but his name rhymes with Master Bug. Um, and uh, and no, no, um, no pun intended. Um, uh, I was uh, I was on my way out, and um, Pastor Doug asked me. He says, "How was how was your week, John?" And I started mumbling like a little baby and saying, "I had a terrible week." And um, and to me, my my terrible week might be just someone's normal week, but it, it was it felt terrible to me. And and you know, Doug uh, reached his hand across to me, put his hand on my shoulder, and prayed, and gave me some spiritual wisdom. And I said, "Wow." That, that, that's what it feels like to be in a church. That's what it feels like to have someone care enough about me to, to do that. And so I thank you, Doug, for that. It was, it was a blessing. Uh, so there's one thing about church. The other thing about church that happened today to me is I went home, and I, I love Facebook, and I'm, I'm a bit of an addict. Um, and some of you see my posts from time and time and again. And I looked on a post, and there was this, guy I knew, a, a young black man who obviously got older, and, um, and he, he had just been conferred as the lead pastor for Calvary Baptist Church in Toronto. And I was really proud of him. Uh, that young man came and sat in my uh, Sunday school class in my basement in Mississauga 
um, some 22, 23 years ago, and um, I certainly didn't think he was going to turn out to be anything much. Um, but I loved him, and and uh, so I said, I'm proud of you, Pastor uh, David, and, and he wrote back later and said, it all started in your basement. And um, I, I, w- I just was overwhelmed with a sense of, man, I got to play a part in that? Here's a young, uh, y- younger than me now, a young black minister who's reaching out to the core of Toronto, and, and that was because I got the ability to serve and um, I didn't think much of it at the time. And, but the, the, just those blessings of, of, of being served, which is really hard for me, and serving is, is a big part of what church is for me. Um, I wanted to give you um, some key dates. You know, I, I was, uh, uh, somehow I got myself uh, in ch- kind of leading the charge on the capital committee. And, and I tell you, um, don't go golfing with Lyle. Uh, Lowen. I went golfing with him twice. The first time he asked me to be on the finance committee, and I said, I like you. I'll sit there. I, I can't really cause too much um, harm, I don't think. And and then a year later, he says, I want you to be on the this new capital raising committee. We want to expand the church. And I like Lyle, and I said, well, I'm not certainly going to lead anything, but um, I'll come and sit in the committee because I like being hanging out with you. And then a few months later, he decides to hightail it out east and Somehow I'm in charge, which, which was quite, quite frightening to me. Uh, I'll talk to you a little bit more about that later and how I coped with that. But I want to talk to you a, a little bo- a bit about the dates coming up. This is a really, really important part of our church life that is coming up. Uh, we have this night, these two days, September the 10th and September the 11th, where we are um, uh, at this property. What a fantastic way to kick off our capital campaign. Uh, we have... Uh, after this week, we start on back at our current location on Skirfield, and we'll have a number of Sundays where we'll be normal worship Sundays, but we'll be be focusing on different things to do with this capital committee over that time, and and you all also be invited to a small discussion time with with all sorts of different people leading that, where where you can find a lot more detail about what is going on in terms of of how you can participate in the growth of the church and the, and the, and the fundraising and the praying and that goes behind that. Um, and that's going to lead to a very big date. So you can't see anything, so you can't take your calendars out on your smartphones. But please try to blaze in your mind October the 29th. Invitations will be going out for that night. It's what we call the main event. And the main event is where uh, you all come out and we all get together as a family and we celebrate together in a great way um, uh, just what God is going to do for us as a church and that's where we kind of count all the pledges that come in and it's going to be a great evening and then a week later we will be able to make a decision on on how much money we've raised and where we feel that God is leading us as a church and we will celebrate that regardless of the result it's called Celebration Sunday and we're looking forward to that now, I mentioned at the front end of our conversation, so oh, sorry, let me do that again. October the 29th, can you guys all say that? Is the main event. Wonderful. And I want to see everyone in, in their church come out. Uh, there's some great planners involved with, with that, and we'll talk to you a little bit more about that as we go along. Um, I said at the beginning of the conversation, um, 
that that I had I, I had two things for you to do uh, as part of this work tonight to commit yourself to if you would along with me. First of all, you didn't know that tonight was a a committee meeting, did you? You thought you're coming here for a celebration, but I got some bad news for you. You are now all on the capital committee. This is how we built uh, our, our approach. We've, we started with a few of us and we keep on growing and bring more and more people in. And by the end of this thing, I want as a family, as a community, I want us all to feel like we're part of the whole planning of it all because that's the way that I think God would have us do it. And that's the way I'm most comfortable in leading. So um, you're all part of the committee. That's, that's point number one. Point number two comes from my, my good friend, Tim Haig. And um, I had him speak to my staff this week at, at, at work, and uh, he did a great job. And he left with them with one thought. And, and this thought, I think, works really well for our campaign. And that's, that's be your best. Uh, we're, we're not asking for anyone to, um, to be superheroes in this. We're, we're just asking everyone to pray and seek God's advice. And we all want to do our best and be our best for God through this campaign. If we wake up every day and have that intention in our mind, I think God will do miracles and God will do wonderful things in our midst because it won't be about us. It will be about him and his glory. So I'd like to thank you for your time tonight. And I hope you all act as very good committee members from now on in. Thank you. Can't tell if the paper's upside down or not, so that's it's a good sign. Well, you're right, John. You can't see anything but lights. Welcome to my world, John. No, just kidding. It's not that bad on Sunday mornings. Well, I'm trusting that you're still there, and I'm going to share a little bit before we go to prayer. If you all sneak away on me, uh, I will shut her down by midnight, I think. But... Um, uh, one of the guys in the office asked me this past week, how you doing, you know, with sermon stuff and that. And I was just telling them how cluttered I was, wasn't in the zone yet, etc. And I, I realized uh, today that the, the really the issue is there's just so much on my mind and my heart to share as we are on this, on the cusp of this incredible time and season in our church life. And uh, so I'm going to try and boil it down to a few things tonight, but uh, we're going to be really wanting to pray yet before we leave and, and have some sleep tonight and come back tomorrow morning. And um, as you know, perhaps you, you've been listening in, uh, we're going to be going into back to the Old Testament. Uh, we have this rhythm of going Old and New Testament, and we just finished the Gospel of John. And you, you might remember that in 2015, we were exclusively in the Old Testament almost in, in the life of David with First and Second Samuel and uh, covering those books. And so we're continuing on, and, and it just happens that we're going to be talking about David's son Solomon in First Kings. And we'll be starting that uh, next week. And uh, today, or, and tomorrow, I mean, is kind of a transition when we're almost going to be eulogizing the life of David. We're going to be talking tomorrow morning. I'm going to be sharing with you some incredible things that I think we learn from David. And and, uh, and in highlighting some of that, we're going to then talk about what it is that God has for us um, tomorrow morning. 
And as we, as I thought about that, I, th I thought, you know, there's a, there's another man that is called uh, a man after God's own heart, like David. Th there's another man I thought of, and in the scriptures, and it was Abraham. And tonight, I'd like to just talk briefly about Abraham, and I think he has some things to teach us. Um, Abraham, in the book of Hebrews, is given three stories, which is incredible because usually as that author is going through all these incredible feats of faith, he gives just one story per hero in the Old Testament. But in Abraham's case, he actually shares three snapshots, three faith stories. And, and it's incredible because each one of the stories requires a different kind of faith if Abraham was going to follow God. You remember the first one is talked about in Hebrews 11:8, and it comes from Genesis 12 when, when Abraham was asked to leave the Ur of Chaldeans, this place where they were, they worshipped the moon and they were idolaters and so on, and he was asked to leave them and go to the land that God Yahweh would show them him, and uh, that that in, that kind of faith is incredible. Uh, the second time that there was a, a different kind of faith required by Abraham was when he was called upon to, to wait. God had promised him that, that through him he would raise up a, a nation and he would have descendants as many as the stars in the sky. And yet he had to wait. He was already an elderly man. It says in the scriptures in Hebrews 11 that he was as good as dead as far as children bearing was going to happen. And so he waited. That was a different kind of faith until Isaac was born. And then the third kind of faith spoken of later on in Hebrews 11 as well, it, it speaks of the faith that is this incredible, perhaps the hardest kind of faith, where Abraham was asked to give up the, the most dear thing in his life, this child Isaac, who was a little boy of maybe 10 or 12 at the time, and that he was to, to, to sacrifice him. That's what his forefathers did. They sacrificed children. And now God is saying to do this. And, and Abraham was conflicted because this God does not ask me to do this, but he asked me to do this. And he went off to, toward Mount Moriah. And there he raised the knife as he had bound his son on the altar on, on, uh, over the sticks and the fire. And, and just before he plunged the knife in, God provided a ram in the thicket. And uh, it is that place, Mount Moriah, that later on, and we'll be talking about a bit, a bit about it this tomorrow, where David, David comes along and he finds a Jebusite and he buys the threshing floor of this Jebusite in order to stop the hand of God in the plague that had come across Israel because of disobedience. And that very place was where Abraham had, had, had met with God in, on Mount Moriah and that very place was later on where Solomon would build his temple. We'll be talking about that in First Kings this fall. And that very place was where Jesus Christ was offered as the sacrifice for sinners. I have a whole bunch I've been learning and thinking about in terms of theology of place. And I have not even a chance to, to scrape the surface tonight. Because we do have a theology of place. All religions do. But I want you to know that Christianity has a theology of place that is radically different than any other world religion or philosophy. 
And this fall, as we go through our series and sermons, I want us to understand clearly as New Covenant believers what it is to be New Covenant believers and have a place in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say to you, I believe that God calls all of us at different seasons, individually and collectively, I believe that God calls all of us to exercise those three kinds of faith. The, the, the first kind is, I call it the get-up-and-go faith. It's the faith that takes you from the comfortableness of whatever you've been doing, and God just says, get up and go. Pat and I experienced that kind of faith when we were pastoring after 12, over 12 years at First Baptist Church in Thunder Bay, and, and, and we saw people leaving to go to mission fields and so on, and we were thought we were preparing for our, our first sabbatical back then. But God said no, and he kept on telling us this scripture, Abraham, get up and go. Go to the land that I will show you. And we resigned, and we rated on God as to where he was going to send us, and he sent us to Bolivia. That get up and go faith can be so exciting, but it can also be nerve-wracking because we like to be in control of the plans for our lives. The second kind of faith is also unnerving because it is, it is the it is slow down and wait kind of faith. And some of you have known more about that perhaps than I have in the fact that maybe God has said to you, wait, wait for my timing. It is hard to wait for God's timing. And that could apply to us as, in, as individuals in all areas of life, and it could also apply to us collectively. Wait. And then there's that third kind, and I know, I know people in our own church family that know more about this third kind of faith than I do. It is the surrender up, yield up and give over something absolutely precious to you kind of faith. And trust God to provide for you and return it in his own time. That's a hard thing, that kind of faith. God asks us to do so. Friends, we are not good at trusting. We, we do not, it's not easy to trust God. You know, as we, we had the, the evening beginning, I was looking up many times and there were birds flying south or flying overhead. And, you know, God hardwired them to follow his path. God hardwired the creatures of this creation to, to follow him and to do what they're called to do. And you'll see all the geese will be flying south. And all the, it's, it's by nature that God has called them and wired them to do that. But he created you and I in his image. He created you and I after himself. We can volitionally choose not to trust God or we can choose to trust God. It's up to us. And as he leads us, every season of life that he leads us privately through, every season of life that he leads us corporately through is going to require a different kind of faith. And I ask that God would make us worthy because we can be, I can be, so weak in faith. Together we need to encourage one another. In Psalm 31:15, David, in a very difficult season of his life, he writes these words. He says, my times are in your hands, O God. My times are in your hands. And uh, I want to say to you, our times are in God's hands. 
And we are entering into a new season of growth, even as tonight you have heard through testimony how our church family in the last 56 years has gone through various seasons of growth. The people of McDermott Baptist Church that planted on Grant had a season of growth they entered into be, being led by God. The people at Grant Avenue Baptist had a season of growth. They sensed the winds of God changing and blowing them south to White Ridge. And, and I believe that God is now also leading us into a new season of growing, and it means a transplant in that way of where we will place a facility. Now, we're going to talk a lot about facility and building and land because I believe God wants us to be clear about what a theology of place is all about. And that's going to happen this fall. For now, I believe that what God would have us do as we end the evening is to have some time to pray. And, and we've got a whole bunch of you here. We're all intercessors. We're all prayers. We're all given this platform because of Jesus Christ in us to come before his throne of grace and to call upon God to do what we could never do in ourselves. And so tonight, I'm going to ask, as I name a few people, they're going to come forward. You're going to see who they are here. And then the lights are going to be turned around so that you can see the footprint of the building. And I'm just going to mention five areas that I'm going to ask you to gather around these five people and pray over. Pray for those areas. First of all, each of them are going to pray and tell you a little bit about what might be prayed for in that area. And then we're going to ask you to just pray popcorn prayers around them for that space. And then Tim Haig is going to come forward here. He's going to grab a microphone so you can hear him. And then he's going to be inviting us all back to conclude the evening together right back in this in the space that you're in now. So could I have, first of all, Pastor Kevin Clausen come forward and Kevin is going to be back here. And because this space, the stage here, represents where the, the stage in, is going to be in our, in our multipurpose sanctuary room. So he's going to be at the front. And I'm asking you to either just, some of you can stay in your chairs, but, or you can get up and come, come over toward where he is and gather around him like a little huddle. I, I'd love to see in each of these five places at least 15 people with each of, of us. So some of you are going to come around Kevin after I'm done speaking, and you're going to pray for the, the sanctuary, the multipurpose room, etc. I'm also going to ask Pastor Kevin to come forward. The other Kevin. <laughs> Pastor Kevin Schuler, come on down. And Pastor Kevin is going to be uh, praying over the fireside room, the youth room. It's also multipurpose. It's, gonna, it's over there, and he's going to fan out over there after we dismiss. And he's going to go with about 15 of you, and I want you to be praying. He's going to share, first of all, a few minutes of prayer, and then you're going to follow in prayer, and you're going to pray for the youth and, and, and the fireside room and so on over there. Could I have Michelle come forward? Michelle Schmidt. Michelle Schmidt is representing tonight the children's ministry and the daycare that meets in the space in our basement. And back right behind us, right in that section of the building marked out, is what this huge footprint for children's ministry is all about. And I want 15 or so of you to gather around, follow Michelle back there, and just pray for ministry to children in this community through the daycare as we try to intersect with their leaders and, and share God's love, as well as through, through the, the, our own Sun Seekers program, the nursery, and all the things that go on in our children's ministry. 
Out, out that way, at that corner front of the building, I'm going to ask Pastor Doug Friesen to come forward now. And Doug is going to be going to take a group out in that direction. And uh, 15 of you or so are going to go with Doug, and he's going to be praying uh, to start out, and he's going to be talking about what, what kind of stuff happens in the foyer in that area, and how can we be praying for that. And then myself, I will, I will be leaving and going into that corner over here, and that's where all the administration and office staff and people's offices are going to be, and, and that's where I'm going to go. I'd love for some of you to join me, and I'd like to lead you, and I'd like to hear you pray over what that space represents in terms of ministry and God's kingdom. And so uh, in, in, in right now, would you just uh, go out into those directions? Uh, the lights will be turned. Get up from your seats and go. And uh, let's pray for five or ten minutes, and then Tim will come up, and you'll hear his voice calling you back to this place. All right, now that you're comfortably seated, I'll get you to stand with me, and we'll close in prayer. Have you had a good evening? Amen. It's been a fantastic way to start off this campaign. It's a wonderful, th wonderful to hear of all the things that God has done in our, um, in our midst, and uh, it's my pleasure and honor now to end us in prayer and direct us back to the Father. If you'll pray with me. Heavenly Father, our great high King of heaven, we bow before you this evening and we are so very grateful for all that you have done for us. First and foremost, above everything, Father, we are thankful for your salvation that you've provided for us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and his shed blood on Calvary. Nothing that we say or do could be done without that gift, Father. And we first of all thank you for all that you've done for us in that. We thank you for how you have blessed us abundantly, Father. You've given us material means, the ability to think and to plan and to prepare in ways that are amazing, are fun, that are exciting to think of all that you could do in our midst, Father. But we bring all of those things to you, Father, and we bow before you and we humbly bend our knee and submit all of our will and our thoughts and our plans to you, Father. We stand in this land that you have given us this evening, Father, and we ask now that you would take and that you would build the walls of this house of worship, that you would help us to build a place here, Father, that would be a beacon of light to our community, that would not only serve your church, these people that stand here with me, but the community around us, Father, we pray that so many would come to know you because of the money, the brick and the mortar, the time and the effort that we put into building a house of worship, Father. We pray that it would change the life of our place called White Ridge. We play, pray that it would play a part in changing the life of Winnipeg, that ultimately it would change the life of Canada because of what we say and do here, Father, in our worship of you. But it only can be done through you, Father, because you are our great God. We are so very moved that we do not pray to a God made of stone. We do not pray to a God who we carved and fashioned out of wood. We don't pray to a God that we dreamt of, but we pray to the great high King of heaven who created us and all that we are. And that we stand underneath your heavens, Father, and we lift our hearts and our minds to you and ask, O oh God, that you would be blessed in all that we say and do, and that you would be glorified, that your name would be magnified in our world because of what we say and do here, God. Have your will. Bless the work of our hands. Be pleased, O oh God, with all that we do.
We ask it in Jesus' name. It's in his, for his sake we pray. Amen. Uh, good morning. I've been here a long time, so I get to speak a lot. In the late 1950s, our NAB conference started an English plant church in Winnipeg. I was coming to this city to enter nurses' training, so I was encouraged to attend and be part of this new outreach. The first few years were spent in temporary facilities, but in 1962 we moved into our permanent location on Grant Avenue. In what was supposed to be our educational unit, a first step in the plan to add a sanctuary in the future. I remember a young people's potluck where we um, cleared some space in our unfinished basement and set up a boards um, and whatever we could to serve as tables and chairs and use the f and had our first potluck there and then used the furnace to keep our food warm. We were so anxious to get into our facility. Eric and I were so thrilled to be one of the first couples to be married there. There were no pews, just chairs, and many were colored with um, splattered paint. And Hannah, I hear you're planning your wedding already in the new, in the new facility, and I'm sure you won't have to worry about paints, uh, chairs splattered with paint. Um, it didn't take long before we had an addition added to accommodate the growing Sunday school and church activities. At times, we felt we should call our church the revolving door church because it seemed that just when things were going well, a large number of families were moved out of Winnipeg to other locations. This was very discouraging, but God always brought new people, and for the time they attended, they added much to the life and spiritual growth of the church. So whether in times of growth or periods of trials and difficulties, God strengthened our faith and desire to serve him. After 25 years, when lack of space and parking issues caused concern, we took a step of faith and relocated to White Ridge. Now we had our sanctuary. God blessed this step of faith um, beyond any of our imaginations. Now, here we are, 25 years later or more, facing the same issues of space and parking and looking forward to building on this beautiful site here. Our church was a growing church in many ways than one. I guess one of the things that I've noticed um, over the years or right between the difference now and then is that when we first started um, so many years ago, our congregation consisted of just young people and young couples. Well, over time, some of us have aged, so now I s we have a good population of seniors, and um, I don't know what this means, but it was so encouraging to hear of um, the faithfulness and the growth of the young people um, in our group right now. Um, this church has been a very important part in my life and that of my families. The blessings are far too numerous to count. I have had the privilege of serving on many boards and in different ministries, hearing the word and experiencing the passion, passions of eight different pastors. Oops. We have been an adaptive congregation, I think, changing and um, open to new methods of ministry when it was a more effective way to do ministry. Um, 
However, we have not de deviated from the fundamentals established in our founding constitution. Our basis has always been Bible-based preaching and teaching. The ministries we have focused on have been missions at home and abroad, and we had three couples that went out under Wycliffe one year to different parts of the world, and over the years we've had many mission teams, and this continues still to be the uh, uh, pr process in our church, which we are so thankful for. Um, music has always been a big uh, part of our ministry, and we have always been blessed by very talented people and um, have so had such a good music ministry in these uh, many years. Children's programs and um, youth, whatever it might be, um, the programs and methods of doing ministry may have changed, but not the reason we do them, and which is to make Christ known in the community where we believe God has placed us. Even in the early 1970s, there was much discussion about running a daycare program in the church, but that never sort of got off the ground. We even had a curling team that was part of a church league. So it's funny how over the years, things are different and yet the same. Um, as I look at the plans and envision what our new church might look like, I'm so excited by the possibilities awaiting here, us here. And when I see the size, I'm overwhelmed. Many people in the past caught the vision of this church and worked hard to build the building on Grant and then on Skirfield. They served by donating many hours of volunteer labor. Some are now in eternity and never saw how God blessed their faithfulness. Presently, we have a very hard-working building committee seeking God's wisdom and direction in the step of faith for our church in the future. It is an overwhelming task, but with God, all things are possible. May we be in constant prayer for the days ahead as God leads. Well, Trudy, that explains a lot. Now I know why when she forgets my name, she calls me number eight. <laughs> Not really. I've never heard Trudy call me number eight. It's a, it's a great place to be together today. Thank the Lord for good weather. Uh, we, we sit, stand, lie down on, on uh, a, a piece of land that last night uh, we heard the story of how God provided this piece of land. And uh, I pondered last year as we were preparing for the case statement and the vision that this would have, how its, its proximity to the bird sanctuary, Fort White Alive, right next door. And, and um, we, we, uh, we talk about a sanctuary being a, a, a room where God's people gather to worship. And, and I mentioned it last night that uh, I've been reading more and thinking a lot about a theology of place. And... Uh, this fall, we're going to talk a lot about that because uh, unlike any other world religion and in, unlike any other world philosophy, Christianity has a theology of place that is, that is incredible. It is, it is Jesus Christ. He's the place. He is the temple. He is the place of worship. And uh, when he sent his Holy Spirit into his people, we became the place of worship. We became, became the temple. And this land is a wonderful place. And right now it is sacred land because you're here 
and because Jesus Christ is in you and because he is being exalted in our midst. But when we leave in a, in a few hours, it'll just be land again. And so we assign an incredible significance to land because of what God has brought us together to be, first of all, and to do. Last night, um, we were here together and we, we fanned out and prayed in the different sections of the land uh, and this building footprint. And, and I think Kevin has mentioned it that we will, this is the size of the footprint, but we will be sort of transposed over that way about a half a building length. And so we decided not to cut all that brush down right now for the sake of this service. But that's the footprint of the building. And uh, it's an incredible opportunity that God's put before us. And this weekend uh, launches our capital funds campaign this fall, which is entitled A New Season of Growing Together. And the, the new season of growing together is all about us. It's about the people of God and what he's growing in and, and through us. And as I've listened to testimonies, you've heard a little bit about the buildings that we've had over the years, but you've heard a lot more about life transformation, and that's what we are excited about. I mentioned last week or last night about uh, Abraham, how God had led Abraham into three critical stages of a different kind of faith, the first, when he left his homeland and went off to, to find the place that God would plan for him, it was a get-up-and-go faith. He had no idea where he was going. And I mentioned as well that he was called to wait. It's a slow-down-and-wait faith that God sometimes brings us into a season of waiting upon him. And then there's that third scenario in Hebrews 11 where it's described that Abraham was asked to offer up the most precious thing in his life, his only son Isaac, which is a picture of God the Father offering his son Jesus Christ. And, and that's a, a, a give over and surrender faith. And last night I mentioned that that is indeed the way that often God leads us as people to offer up ourselves in, in faith and in obedience and to either get up and go, slow down and wait, or offer up and surrender. What is the kind of faith that God's leading us into together? Let's pray together. Father, as we begin to open your word this morning, we thank you for the privilege of, of being here on this piece of land. Lord, uh, land has significance because of its being assigned a meaning. This morning we think of it being 9-11 and that land in New York that has significance because of an event. And this land might have significance because of what we assign to it one day as the place of, of meeting and gathering and planning and, and ministering to souls. But God, that's in your will, and that's in your timing, and our times are in your hands. And so, Father, we would ask that you would make it clear what is your leading, and through your people, that you would guide us, Father, into the next season of growing together. And if it includes this place, as opposed to being at McDermott or at Grant or at Skirfield, then, Lord, have your way, and don't let us hold back anything of your kingdom coming and your will being done. Open up our hearts now, God, and help us to hear what you have to say this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We uh, spent 2015 studying the life of David, and we have gone back and forth with the Old and New Testament. This past summer, we were in the Gospel of John. Now we're going back into the Old Testament, and we pick up into 1 Kings next week, and we will be studying the life of Solomon and the building of the temple. And it, it just happens that that's exactly when this building campaign is on. And it's going to be an interesting juxtaposition as we study what New Covenant Temple is all about and as we study what Solomon was all about. And so this morning as we begin, I, if you have a Bible and you want to open to uh, Acts chapter 13, this morning we're going to be almost eulogizing David as we say goodbye to David and review what some of the things of his life were all about. And as we turn to look at his son Solomon and what his reign will be all about. And so in Acts chapter 13, there's just two verses that I'd like to share with you. And you can remain seated as I read them. First of all, in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, it says, After removing Saul, he made David their king, and he testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. For when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. That last verse in verse 36 of Acts 13. Why does Paul, who's preaching in Antioch in this passage, mention that David's body saw decay? It's because he's preaching on the resurrection. He's preaching on the fact that Jesus Christ did not see decay. He's alive. And uh, he was preaching to a group of people that needed to come to believe that. And here we are in a city where there are many people that do not believe that Jesus Christ is alive. I spoke of the resurrection a couple of weeks ago when we were concluding the Gospel of John. And I said that you could divide all of the people of Winnipeg into two groups. There are the group of people that really do not in their hearts believe that God through Jesus Christ, is alive, and that your life matters to him today. And there is a group of people that really do not believe that God is alive, that Jesus Christ is alive, and that he cares about our lives, that he loves us. And so Paul is preaching the resurrection, and in the process he describes David, who is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Now David's life can be understood in three seasons. And I'd like to quickly have a, a review of David's life right now and take a look at those seasons together with you. The first season of David's life is easy. We got very little information about it. It's from the age of birth to 17 years of age when David was uh, with his father Jesse and his other seven brothers. And, and he was a shepherd boy, often out on the fields. And uh, we read about that in Samuel not too much to know about. But at the age of 17, an incredible thing happens to David. And the prophet Samuel comes along and tells, God tells him that he is going to uh, have, uh, Jesse's family is going to have the next king. And, and after all the brothers of David pass by, uh, finally they go out into the fields and get the youngest. And he comes in to, to, to be crowned king by Samuel. And the famous words that are found in that scripture in Second Samuel or First Samuel is, do not consider his appearance or his height. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we know from Second Samuel five four that David is not crowned or it is not uh, does not actually become king, crowned king, enthroned king 
until the age of 30. So everything between the age of 17 and the age of 30 is found in the last half of, of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16 to 31, ages 17 to 30. That's the second phase or season of David's life. Now, what happens in those 13 years? Well, that's, that's when he killed the giant Goliath. That's when he served in Saul's army. That's when he was tested because Saul became jealous and David had to flee into the desert and wilderness with his faithful army. And that's when he also fled into Philistine country for just over a year in a state of hard-heartedness and rebellion almost against God. Very dry years. In fact, in those, that year and three months in Philistine country, we know of none of the Psalms that came from David during that season of dryness and of walking away from God. This was a, t- a period of time in the second season of David's life was when he, he lost his innocence, when he, he became a man and he became a man of God, but it was through very difficult times and not always pretty, not always faithful. And, and then the final season of David's life begins at the age of 30 when he is finally given the throne and he quickly does a few things. He, he brings the capital city to Jerusalem. He brings the Ark of the Covenant and makes the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And he unites the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, which had been divided up until that time. And so in that period of time, there is great prosperity. God gives him victory over all of his enemies surrounding him. In 2 Samuel 8, we read of a summary of all the accomplishments of David in that season of time at the beginning of that third season of his life as a young or middle-aged man. But then we read in the Scriptures in 2 Samuel that he begins to stumble. He begins to take his ease. He begins to let down his guard. And in one instance, instead of going out to battle when all kings would go out to battle, he instead stays at home and he is lured into temptation as he witnesses one of his faithful men's wife bathing on a rooftop. He lusts after Bathsheba. He commands her to be brought to him. And then through a scheme of all kinds of deceit and lies, he has her husband killed. He becomes, within a few days, he becomes an adulterer, a liar, and a murderer. And for a whole year of David's life, in this incredible season of prosperity, David is in rebellion against God. And he is hard-hearted. And God is not speaking to him. Finally, God sends the prophet Nathan. And the prophet Nathan arrives and he tells a story to David. And, and David identifies the, the one in the story and he realizes that it's him that he's talking about. And he confesses his sin and repents. And so in this period of time, now I want you to, I want you to know, David's sin with Bathsheba had started 20 years earlier. When he had opened the door of his palace to have many concubines and many wives, something that was never God's intention. Sin is a social disease. And so it not only affected his life, but it affected the lives of those in his family and his kingdom. And so we see in this same season of life that within a few years, his sin has affected his children. And we see that uh, the sin of David has affected his son, Amnon, who rapes his half-sister, Tamar. 
And then in revenge, out of this indignity, another son, Absalom, kills his older brother, Amnon. And so within just a few months, David's sin has become this incredible blight on his family and on his kingdom. It is in this season of David's life that we see the man of God, the man after God's own heart, unraveling. We see this gloomy depression settle upon David like we had never seen before in his biography. For a season, instead of turning his face upward to be a man after God's own heart, he turns his face towards the wall. He is an uninvolved father and husband and king. He is a depressed man. He is not parenting. He is not leading his wife and family. He is not leading his kingdom. He is passive. He does nothing to reconcile his son who has raped his daughter except get angry. He does nothing to reconcile the other son who has become a murderer except send him away. And as contradictory as it may sound, doing nothing is is actually doing something. Doing nothing is always doing something. Don't ever kid yourselves in life. Doing nothing is always doing something. What was David doing? David was embittering his children against him in this season of life when his face was turned to the wall instead of towards the Lord and his family. And in this season of doing nothing, we see his children become embittered. We, become, we see Absalom become a, a free-riding rebel in the kingdom. We see him go unchecked to do wherever and whatever and however he pleases. And while David mopes to himself in the palace, Absalom is forming a conspiracy against him. And that's what happens. Absalom slowly gains such a following over three to four years that he finally raises an army large enough to come to to Jerusalem. And David the king, the rightful king, again does nothing except flee from his rightful throne and leaves Jerusalem. And we see that the standoff finally occurs when the forces of David in the wilderness and the forces of Absalom meet up and Joab, the commander of David's army, kills Absalom. What does David do? He mourns. He finally returns to Jerusalem to reclaim his throne, and yet for the rest of David's days, he experiences division in the kingdom, conflict within his family, conflict within the regiment of his army, conflict with the enemies outside of Jerusalem. And when David is in this season of time, he makes also a huge blunder. Whereas the sin with Bathsheba was a sin of, of, of lust and a sin we call in the Bible the sin of the flesh, the sin of taking a military census was a sin of the Spirit. You You see, because it rose out of not a lust of the flesh, but it rose out of the pride that was in David's heart and the insecurity and the lack of trusting in God. You see, it was never the counting of able bodied military men that won the victories for David in the past. And so now in this season of time, why is it so necessary that they take nine months to sweep the kingdom and count all of the able-bodied men? You see, this was an act of unfaithfulness on the part of David. And incredibly, God judges David severely for this act of unbelief and pride. 
what happens is that a plague begins to strike Israel and people are dying. And as David sees it happening, he realizes that it is because of his sin and he runs before God and God tells him through the prophet Gad that he is simply to go and build an altar, sacrifice on it, and the plague will stop. Well, God directs him to the place of a Jebusite and he owns a threshing floor. He buys the threshing floor, though Arauna, the Jebusite, is offering to give it to him free of charge. And David says, I will not offer to God anything that costs me nothing. And so he takes and he, he pays for the threshing floor. He builds the altar on the threshing floor. He gets the animals and sacrifices to the Lord his God on that place. And the plague stops. And that is the last verse of Second Samuel. That's the last picture we saw of David when we ended it in 2015. The last verse of 2 Samuel says, And then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land. The plague on Israel was stopped. That's the last scene of David. That's the last scene. Here we see then at the end of 2 Samuel an old king, a tired king, a depressed king, a passive king with no successor, no one named to take the throne. He's turned inward, he's uninvolved, and he is reaping the whirlwind of his own disobedience. He is a negligent husband and father and king who bears no resemblance to the young man that we read of earlier in the great exploits of faith as he led thousands in Israel to accomplish the will of God in that generation for his kingdom. But I want to tell you, God is not finished with David. And God carries on the story in 1 Kings. As we begin next week, we'll be looking at specifically. And God enables, by his grace, for David to finish well. There is nothing, I'm telling you, there's nothing in the narrative so far. There's nothing in the narrative that would suggest to us that David the king is going to finish his life well. But by the grace of God, David finishes his life well. What fascinates me is that years, generations later, when Paul is preaching in Antioch, he can still call David a man after God's own heart who led with integrity. It amazes me that long after all of the blunders and the blight on David's testimony and and track record, he is still called a man after God's own heart. He says he will do everything I want him to, and after fulfilling God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and his body saw decay. I want to just ask you what a statement that is. He fulfilled God's purpose in his own generation. After we've read about this man whose life and his mistakes have been laid bare, scrutinized, warts and all, how did David serve God's purposes? I want to just say one thing about that, that question, and that is that incredibly, the way that, that David fulfilled God's purposes was through his weakness and his blunders that God used David more than any other king to grow his kingdom, but he didn't do it the way David expected it. He did it out of the two greatest sins that David ever committed. 
Out of his sin with Bathsheba, we see the successor to his throne, his son Solomon, rise up. And out of his sin of taking a military census, we see him purchase the very land, this threshing floor in Jerusalem, that would become the place where Solomon will build the temple. Incredible. The two blunders of David's life are used by God to leave the most lasting legacy of what David was all about. What an incredible lesson this is. I mentioned last night, that we want to talk a lot about a theology of place. We want to be clear about what this land represents and what it does not represent. We believe in Jesus Christ, that he has become everything we need. He is the temple. He is the center of our faith. In fact, even as we've just finished John's gospel, we were reminded that at the very beginning, the way John outlines his gospel, he says, the word was made flesh and he tabernacled. He made his dwelling. He pitched his tent. The location, the place was him. He was among us. And we have beheld his glory. Glory comes from temples. We beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only. And in, in John chapter 2, when... Jesus is near the temple. And he, he actually, John, John actually puts the cleansing of the temple at the beginning because he's trying to make a statement. When Jesus walks into the temple and he sees the money changers and he, he throws over the tables and he's making the statement, this is not the way it's going to be. I'm going to be the temple. And remember what happened in that scripture in John 2? He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And someone says, it took 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to do it in three days? And John puts in parenthesis, by this he meant his body, whom he would give for sinners. It, it, it was all about Jesus' body. That's the temple. And so now that the Holy Spirit has come and we are the body of Christ, we, the people, are the temple of the living God. Amen? That's the, that's the promise. That's the, that's the conclusion of theology of place. There are three sacred mountains in Jerusalem. There is the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley, of course, where Jesus wept drops of blood and prayed and was arrested. There is Mount Zion, of course, where today stands the Muslim Dome of the Rock. And then, of course, there is Mount Moriah right beside it. And Mount Moriah is where Solomon built his temple and it stood for over 400 years until Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it in 586. And it says in the scriptures that Solomon built the temple right over that threshing floor that David had purchased. I find it so interesting that of all the legacy of faith that David leaves, his two sins are the things that impact future generations the most. I find it interesting that in all of scripture that we read about David after his death, we don't see any of the authors of Scripture rehearsing his blunders, talking about his mistakes, defining his sins, talking about the bad days. We only read about the good days. For example, in Psalm 78, when another psalmist is talking about King David, here's what he says. He says, He chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to the shepherd of his people, Jacob of Israel, in his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. 
David is being esteemed here in this eulogizing that takes place in Psalm 78. And that is what a eulogy does. It, it speaks well of, it, it forgets the bad. It speaks well of the person that is deceased. And here is an example where David is eulogized. He's known as a faithful shepherd, a skilled poet, an accomplished musician, a, a brave warrior, a mighty king, a man of faith, a man after God's own heart. And at the end of his life, by the grace of God, he even appoints the proper successor, his son Solomon, who chooses as a wise successor to continue the throne. And on the surface, like I said, there's no explanation why or how he could finish well, and yet, by the grace of God, he does. If you have a Bible and you want to turn to it, I will read to you a verse from 1 Chronicles chapter 28, and we will talk briefly next week about this very thing. But the final words of David to Solomon are incredible words, and we need to take a lesson from them. In in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9, this is what David says to his son, Solomon. David is just going to be around a, a month or two more before he dies, our guess is. And these are some of the last words, David, to Solomon. He says, you, my son Solomon, know or acknowledge, but the older translations say know. It's the word know. Know the God of your father, and serve him with wholehearted devotion and a willing mind. Now, I want you to know that if you've read through much of the Old Testament, whenever someone later in, in redemptive history is talking back about something earlier in redemptive history about God, what do they normally say? Know the God of who? Know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Over and over again, that's, that's what it's all about, is, is follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what does this passage say when David is sitting with his son Solomon? What does he say? He says, know the God of your father. I think that is incredible. I think that is huge. I think that what David was saying here was, know my God. Know the God that I have followed with all my heart. Yes, I've made many blunders, but I have tried to live a Godward life. David is not just passing on a kingdom. David is not just saying, Know the kingdom that I have for you. Know, know the boundaries of Jerusalem. Know the palace I built. Know the boundaries of all of Judea and Israel. Know my religion that I'm passing. Remember my psalms and the poems that I have written. Know the law of Moses. He's not saying these things. He's not saying, know the throne that I'm passing on to you and the authority it carries. Know, know the people that, that God has put under your care. He's not saying that. He's not saying, know the treasury that has come from all the battles we've fought with our enemies, all the gold, silver, and costly stone. Know every nickel and dime and crown in there. He doesn't say that. He's not concerned about knowing the temple that has been given 
in plans to David by God himself. He doesn't say anything about all these things. What does he say? What is the true legacy of faith that David is passing on? He says, know the God of your father. Know my God. That is huge. Know my God. That's the biggest, most important, and sacred legacy that he could have passed on. Found a book here by Elizabeth Elliot named God's Guidance. I want to read to you a little story. Elizabeth Elliot, as you know, was a missionary in Ecuador. And she says, two young Americans with high adventure in their hearts arrived in the city of Quito, Ecuador, on their way to see the great Amazon rainforest east of the Andes. They were going on a six-week trek and had planned to write a a book about their experiences. She puts in brackets, I guess six weeks ought to be enough to write a book. They had been to an army surplus store before they left home, bought everything that the salesman told them they would need, things like waterproof hammocks and mosquito nets and canvas water bags and lanterns and floating flashlights and safari t-shirts and fish hooks and bait and all the other stuff. And she said, what more could they want? There, w- there it was. It occurred, it occurred to them that when they reached Quito, one thing they lacked, the language. And when they learned that there was a jungle missionary living in Quito, Ecuador, they came to my door and knocked on it. There would be Indians where they were going, wouldn't there? They asked. Well, maybe, but that would depend on where you're going. That too would depend Ah, Quichuas, they said? No, it depends on where you're going. There were seven or eight tribes on that side of the Andes, and their their map was rather vague as to the route they would take. But um, finally, oh, well, just give us a few phrases, they said to her. Indian languages are pretty much all the same, aren't they? Well, they described their equipment with great pride, and I could see that it was not going to be of much use. I wanted to tell them that what they ought to have was a guide, but they asked only for help on language and nothing on equipment, and so that was the advice they got. There they went, full of confidence, out the door, and perhaps they found their way all right, perhaps they survived, perhaps they didn't, perhaps they wrote their book, I never heard of them again. Sometimes we come to God as the two adventurers that came to me, sometimes confident, and we think well-informed and well-equipped, but it has not occurred to us that with all of our accumulation of stuff, something is missing. There's just one thing we will have to ask God for, and we hope he will not find it necessary to sort through the other things that we've accumulated. There's nothing there that we're, we're willing to do without. Besides, we know what we need. A yes or a no answer from God is all we look for. That's all we need. Or perhaps a road sign. Something quick and easy and to the point is what we'd like. But what we really ought to have is the guide himself. Maps, road signs, these are useful phrases to have in the language that you you need. But infinitely better is someone who has been there before and knows the way. (laughs) Well, the same is true for us, isn't it? David lived a Godward life. The legacy of David's life, even in the midst of all his screw-ups, was forged out of a governing principle that was vertical, Godward. He sought the Lord 
Even when he had failed, he sought the Lord. He learned, even when he blew it, that God was the one he could run toward, not away from. And so his eulogy remembers the true David, a man after God's own heart, who did not allow his failures and life's detours and sins and circumstances to define him. He lived a Godward life. He had served God's purpose in his own generation. He died and is remembered not for the events of his life, but for the essence of his life. Not for the events that even brought him shame but for the essence of his life. And I want to tell you, you and I will be remembered in the same way. Though we have all had our regrets and failures and sins that we are ashamed of, they do not need to define us, neither in this life nor in how we will be remembered by those that matter. The essence of a life lingers on in eulogy. The events will be forgotten. And this is true for us individually, and it will be true for us as the people of God called White Ridge Baptist Church. And so in the future, the events of ministry will eventually be forgotten. Many things will be forgotten in future generations. The programs that we run, the committees that we have, the ministries, the buildings. It is not these that we pass on to the next generation. It is not, we do not write checks for those things alone, but for the kingdom that will come, for the essence of ministry, a life that is Godward, a church that is Godward. It is not these things that inspire a new season of growing together. We do not tell our next generation of children, youth, and young adults, know our programs, know our constitution, know our governance model, know our ministries, know our facilities. We don't say that. We say, know our God. We say, know God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't even say to them, know our vision, because the next generation might have a vision that does not look like the vision that we have, that when they walk with God, God will lead them into the vision for their generation. And so I say to you as I conclude, along with David, know our God, the God of our Father. Know the God that has served for 56 years, this church, know Jesus Christ. Know the one for whom to know is eternal life itself. Know the one that died for our sins and rose again. Know the one that is, is the one that yet has people in the city of Winnipeg that are yet to claim Jesus Christ as Lord. Know the one that sits right now at the Father's right hand and is interceding for us. Know the lover of your soul that when you mess up, he runs toward you, not away from you. Know the one who is gathering a people from every city, from every place on this globe, from every language and nation under heaven. Know the one who is supreme over all powers and kingdoms and authorities. Know the one who is the returning triumphant king coming soon to gather his church. Know the one who sees every effort that we make, every investment we have in our lives, in our money, in our time. Know the one who sees it all and will one day say to us, well done good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of my Father. Let us pray. Lord, may we be found faithful, O God. May we be found faithful to the very end of our lives. And whether that be soon or many decades away, may we be found faithful to fulfill the purpose that you have for us in this generation, even as David, in all of his mess-ups, lived a Godward life 
and was able to be found faithful. And so that the eulogy reads, he was a man after God's own heart. May we be the people after your heart. May we live Godward lives. And together as we sanctuary on this earth and show to this community around us what Jesus Christ is all about and the glory of his presence, may we impact this world. And Lord, may you lead us to do the things that you alone can lead us to do. We pray in your precious name. Amen.